Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me on the phone today is longtime friend and Southern historian Jim Cobb from Athens, Georgia. And Jim is the Finnessy Spalding Professor Emeritus of the Department of History at the University of Georgia, former president of the Southern Historical Association, and one of the country's greatest historians. And he's taken on the biography of C. Van Woodward, whom he calls America's historian. But for those of us who went through graduate school in the 60s and early 70s, yes, he might have been America's historian, but he was the South's historian. And what Van Woodward said and what he wrote about was in every seminar, and it was almost holy writ. Jim, why did you decide to take up a topic like this? Well, unfortunately for me, I decided to take it up uh, uh, nearly, you know, some 15 years before <laughs> before I actually retired. It took took me this long, off and on, working on it. To uh, 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 I, I was sort of inspired by a, a conference uh, that they, they put on at Rice in uh, 2001 to uh, uh, commemorate. The, the 50th anniversary of Woodward's Origins of the New South, which is uh, uh, basically covered and kind of framed uh, the period in Southern history between the end of Reconstruction and the start of World War One, And it was by far Woodward's best book. Uh, and I decided to go and visit Woodward's papers at Yale just to, to add a little enrichment to what I was going to say. And, and uh, once I saw those papers and how rich they were, and I thought, well, this guy was too important. He was too, he was all the things you said uh, uh, in terms of his being ubiquitous in the literature and in the uh, classroom assignments of uh, people who were uh, grad students in Southern history in the uh, in the, the 1960s and 70s and, and later. So that's how I, I just kind of was drawn into this. And uh, I have to confess that uh, I'd always sort of seen biography as just sort of the easy way, you know, that, that it, wh what would be the problem? You got the person's life to outline, you know, how you're going to write the book. And so you just, you know, it, it seemed very simple and compact. And and boy, was I wrong about that. I was um, going to say, this is not your typical biography. Um, well, and, that's, 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 that's true, too. You know, if I'd had... Uh, any inkling of what a project I was undertaking at that point, I might not have done it. But once I was into it, it was uh, it became like the you know the old car. You 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 you've got too much invested in it to to get rid of it, but uh, uh, you never can get it exactly to run the way you want to. So it took me that long to get it running well enough that I thought it was fit to put in print. You got into the papers in two thousand and one. What was it that grabbed you? that got your attention that said, hey, I got to do more than just talk about this man at the 50th anniversary of the Origins of the New South Conference? Well, you know, the content of the papers, of course, is a reflection of, of, of Woodward's uh, own qualities as an as a individual and as a, as a scholar. And uh, they were just the, you know, the correspondence was just so rich and evocative Woodward was not. He was a very private person, and and uh, uh, as I say in the book, the the best uh, test of of how well someone really knew Woodward was how quickly in your conversation with him they told you they didn't really know him that well at all. But his correspondence is 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 much more revelatory than his his personality and demeanor, you know, one on one uh, would indicate. In the course of just looking at, at what he was doing while he was working on the origins of the New South, I mean, I just saw he was involved in so many other things at the same time. Unfortunately, that's what proved to, to make the, uh, the, the, the biographies uh, ultimately so challenging. You have to pick and choose which of his activities you want to really you know, hone in on because you couldn't possibly do justice to all of his uh, involvements and the places where his his influence was felt. All right, let's start off and, and give us a brief biography of C. Van Woodward, who he was, where he came from, because there are a lot of folks out there that even those who had a good liberal arts education probably are not reading 
the burden of Southern history or strange career of Jim Crow anymore. Yeah, that's sadly the case, um, uh, particularly for the burden of Southern history, I'd say. Well, Woodward was, I mean, he was very unlikely <laughs> uh, candidate to become, uh, you know, what Drew Faust called the greatest American historian of the 20th century. Uh, he was born in rural Arkansas in 1908. Uh, his daddy was a was a school principal and later a superintendent. Uh, very, very uh, uh, devout Methodist family. They'd had uh, Methodist ministers in their ancestry. So he lived in a pretty strict household in that sense. But he was a uh, you know an extremely curious as a very young person. You know he read all the books in the local library wherever they happened to be living. He, he went from uh, Marlton, Arkansas uh, High School to a little place called Henderson Brown College in Ar- Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and uh, he proceeded to plow through the library there. And and all the while, you know, his real passion was literature, not not history. He, he was never really drawn to history at all for, for much of his early life, most of his early life. And then um, after two years at Henderson Brown, he, he uh, transferred to Emory in Atlanta, finished out another Methodist school. Yeah, I was going to say a good Methodist school. So Absolutely Methodist. Even at Emory, I mean, he was, you know, he was obviously brilliant and, you know, and his classmates and his teachers all along the way, you know, recognized this uh, readily enough, but he really wasn't, you know, focused. You know, he he wanted to keep up with reading the latest literature that was coming, particularly out of the South. And he he sort of in, accidentally, uh, inadvertently majored in philosophy at Emory just because that that was the one area where he he accumulated sufficient credits to earn him a degree. But one of the things I will say, I, I do this in, in the book, it's the contrast. It, he was sort of, I think he's comparable uh, in lots of ways, not every way by any means, to, to Arthur Schlesinger Jr. And so there's Woodward, you know, coming out of the public schools in, uh, in, in small town Arkansas, Schlesinger going to Phillips Exeter, going straight into Harvard. The contrast between their backgrounds uh, and they became, you know, peers and very close friends really shows you how unlikely a candidate Woodward was to become uh, who he eventually became. He more or less was forced into taking a, a fellowship at Columbia for a master's degree, and he, he, he wrote a very indifferent uh, master's thesis about uh, Thomas Heflin, the senator from Alabama. But in the course of writing that thesis, which wasn't very good at all, he um, he became intrigued with the idea of writing a book about Southern demagogues, and he had picked out like seven of them that he was going to profile in a, in a book. But one of those uh, was Thomas E. Watson, Tom Watson of Georgia, who was a, a, just a, a you know a striking story of a populist uh, advocate of biracial politics and interracial cooperation, who mm. suddenly just reversed himself and descended into the depths of racial and religious bigotry in the second part of his career. And Woodward grew so intrigued by him that he decided he, he would just do a biography of Watson. But he, he lost his teaching job. He's been teaching English at Georgia Tech. He lost his teaching job and uh, he ran out of money. You know, this is night we're talking 1933 here. And so he, he fixed on the idea of of going somewhere to get in a PhD program, he could submit his book on Watson as dissertation, and uh, he decided on the University of North Carolina, which had at that time the most reputable uh, history department of, of any public university south of Virginia, and he had had made the acquaintance of uh, Howard Odom, the famed sociologist at UNC. And Odom got him a, a Rockefeller fellowship that would support him while he was at uh, at Chapel Hill. But even so, he 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 hated every minute that he was in gra- graduate school in history. He loved Chapel Hill, but he hated the way uh, history was presented to him by his professors. They just were trying to cram him full of facts, and he he's he was never a facts man. He was an ideas man, and he made that very, very clear and resisted every, every effort to make him into a historian to the point that uh, 
he should have, by all rights, have failed his doctoral comprehensive exams because he, you know, he 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 just blew off question after question that uh, as well as something I was never very interested in. But he managed to squeak by and earn his PhD. But but he had you know he had cut classes, he skimped on his exam prep and everything to focus just on finishing his biography of Watson. And the result was it, it, it turned out to be so good that at Odom's urging, he sent it off to Macmillan just to have a look at it, thinking he would get nothing but suggestions on cutting it or taking it somewhere else. And all of a sudden, he gets a letter from Macmillan, and they, they tell him they want to publish it precisely as it is. They, they discourage him uh, revising it and certainly discourage him from cutting it. And so... Less than a year after he'd submitted it as a dissertation, it was it was in print as as a book. But still, that, even then, he didn't see himself uh, being a historian in uh, in the traditional academic sense until he finally found out. And I mean, the book was widely reviewed, uh, but he had written it in, in some ways much like a novel, and he he left out. He didn't. He, it was underinterpreted uh, for the reader. And uh, his idea was, like a good novelist, he would, you know, coerce the reader into uh, into making connecting all the dots and and uh, making what they would of, of, of Watson's life. So re- it got good reviews, but none of the, there was little agreement on what was really important about it or what was the the main message. And um, when he found out that that it uh, it had sold fewer than. 600 copies its first year in print he he finally realized that he was going to have to be a history teacher he could would be continuing to write but he'd have to be a be writing as an academic and so uh fortuitously for him he got a, an invitation to to write the volume in the newly created uh, history of the south series dealing with the south uh right after reconstruction and as as it happened the fact that nobody really saw in his book any kind of criticism of the old system, the old order, uh, because it was just not clear he hadn't he hadn't focused it. That made him more acceptable because this was still a fairly conservative undertaking. You know, they were not in this new history of the South series, they were not they were not looking to to be revisionist. You know, they yeah. they wanted to more or less kind of reinforce the old traditional wisdom about yeah. Southern history. So and, and Jim, of course, that history of the South series was uh, coming out of LSU Press. Interestingly, the press and LSU at this time had a lot of money, thanks to Huey Long. That's right. Uh, in fact, I've, 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 I probably was as flush as has ever been since. <laughs> so the long story being short, he signed the contract in 1939. It took him till 1951 to finish it because of World War II. He spent uh, uh, two and a half years in the Navy and and by the time he was getting back, they keep they kept opening up new archives with new papers relevant to the book. So it was an exhaustive uh, research. Uh, and, and where is he teaching? He, he he got a job at Johns Hopkins right after the war, right after he came out of the Navy. He was in Naval Intelligence. So Origins finally comes out in, in 1951, and it sort of, you know, establishes him as the, the man to be reckoned with in the future in Southern well, history. Well, he uh, blew up a lot of monuments, so to speak. He sure did. You know, the, the prevailing wisdom was that the South had been rescued from the horrors of Reconstruction by the so-called Redeemers, who were descendants of the old antebellum uh, aristocratic planter class who had who had simply done what it took to to overthrow the Reconstruction governments in the various southern states and set the South back on the right path toward prosperity and economic progress, and uh, uh, you know develop the means for stabilizing the uh, the racial situation in the region. And so the the Redeemers were sort of viewed as heroic figures, but. Woodward completely toppled that particular monument by uh, pointing out that the regimes were corrupt. They're very self-serving. In his view, they sold out the South's uh, labor and its resources. To- oh, well, oh yeah, well, he was right on that. Did they ever sell out the resources? South Carolina actually is one of the few states that did not sell out 
its resources. But you look at Georgia, Alabama, uh, vast, you know, thousands of acres of state lands sold to industrialists. Of course, yeah, to be- or, or or granted to them, uh, even you know, certainly granted to railroads. Uh, so he, you know, it was a very, um, you know, iconoclastic kind of take. Woodward was always writing history with his eye on what was happening in the present and the and the people who the the leading politicians in the South at the middle of the 20th century were were people who were actively likening themselves to the old redeemers and promising that uh, where the old redeemer saved us from the first reconstruction, we're going to save you from the second. Uh, So he saw this connection and he wanted to kind of discredit that line of argument. But by by that time, he was sort of single-handedly responsible for integrating the meetings of the uh, Southern Historical Association. He engineered a way for uh, John Hope Franklin, the distinguished Afro-American historian of the South, to read the first paper ever given by a black person at the, the Southern Historical Association meeting in Williamsburg in 1949. And um, he would soon be involved with the NAACP case uh, that would come out of uh, South Carolina, but eventually evolve and into what became Brown versus Board of Education. And uh, so he worked with um, with that legal team, although he, he played a pretty restrained, restricted role there. He sort of came out of that experience thinking that, that we've got to make sure the Brown decision succeeds and, and get rid of segregation once and for all. So that led him eventually to write a book, uh, his most famous and and by far his most flawed book, A Strange Career of Jim Crow, where he argued that contrary to what people North and South were saying, uh, segregation was not an ancient folkway that had uh, been in practice so long that it could never be eradicated by merely by a, a court ruling. And, and so he undertook to at least argue that that segregation had uh, only developed at the end of the 19th century with the passage of the so-called Jim Crow laws requiring separate accommodations in the, on the railroads and eventually, you know, in other aspects of public life, which proved to be um, within a decade, uh, uh, his fellow historians were jumping all over that argument and producing research showing that segregation had been around a long, long time before those uh, laws were passed. He only came up with the idea for the lectures that, that became the strange career of Jim Crow about 90 days before he was to, to deliver them. So he, he couldn't scrounge up much evidence for his case. And, and also there was the fact that there wasn't much evidence for his case. Jim, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Jim Cobb, Finney's A. Spalding Professor Emeritus at the University of Georgia, about his latest book, C. Van Woodward, America's Historian. Jim, we were talking before the break about the uh, strange career of, of Jim Crow and how Woodward had to scurry around for evidence, but some of the most compelling evidence he used came from South Carolina. Yes, more than actually more of the, you know, the sources, the the discrete individual sources, uh, more than half of them came from South Carolina. And it was so intriguing. I mean, you know, when you, when you step back from it and you understand his approach that three of the, the uh, sources that he used, uh, who basically in one way or another were saying that that it seemed that there was, you know, no rigid pattern of racial separation in South Carolina in the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction. Uh, three of the counts on which he drew uh, had been offered within 18 months of the withdrawal of troops from South Carolina at the end of Reconstruction in 1877. So at that point, uh, white South Carolinians uh, would have been very, very uh, leery of of setting out immediately to to crush black efforts at upward mobility and and put black people completely back under their thumb for fear that the um, you know they might bring the troops right back in. 
right. you know, they they just gotten out of, of uh, what, 11, 10, 10 years of, of federal occupation under the Reconstruction government. So he didn't take much account of that. And then he also, you know, some of the uh, of the sources he used, uh, uh, a lot of the sources he used for any state were, were travelers' accounts. And so, you know, he was getting the testimony of people who had spent a few days in the state of South Carolina and had no idea of the broader context of what was going on. Uh, South Carolina was reasonably late in putting in the, the, the statewide Jim Crow laws. but um, and, uh, and, and part of that is, of course, uh, the reason for that is demographic. South Carolina was still more than 60% African-American. And in there were only really two cities, Columbia and, and Charleston, uh, public accommodations were still actually open because South Carolina did have a civil rights law. Public transportation was open. The theaters were open. But you get beyond those, and it's a different story. If if you read Mary's World and how this former plantation owner dealt with her former enslaved persons in terms of physical separation— those that she would have literally embraced while they were enslaved after 1865, Mary Pringle didn't want to let them touch her. It was a complete reversal of the so-called close relationship that many South Carolina whites had with those who had been their enslaved persons. Yes, and and uh, George Tyndall had already published uh, a, a book on blacks in South Carolina. Uh, during this period and, and, and said at several points in the text that there was no segregation by law. It was true at that point, but it was enforced by custom and social mores quite effectively. And Joel Williamson would come along later with a more up-to-date study that would basically argue that the white people in South Carolina didn't really see any need for laws because they'd already managed to achieve uh, that racial uh, separation by coercion and just uh, the the acceptance of of that practice among whites, uh, and and Williamson also pointed out that the, they weren't in any rush to do it because they didn't want to get the federal troops uh, brought back in. So by virtue of either relying on uh, you know kind of sketchy transient observations in South Carolina and putting so much stock in what he saw in South Carolina. He, you know, he, he overlooked obvious explanations that would have run contrary to his, to his argument that, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was no uh, pattern of segregation in the South uh, prior to the, the actual enactment of laws that mandated it. Yeah, everything was prob- was a- because of Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. That's where he was headed. People were immediately pointing out the flaws in the book. It still was used in graduate seminars. It's used in undergraduate classes throughout the South. I mean, people were critical, but it was widely used. Oh, absolutely. Well, it was the only thing available. I mean, uh, uh, for one thing, you know, I mean, there just wasn't a history of segregation, uh, a comprehensive history. I mean, there were studies, some studies at the state level, in South Carolina or Mississippi, say, but but there was no kind of comprehensive look at at uh, where segregation came from across the South, and and the fact that Woodward uh, began with progressive uh, uh, new editions of the book. He had uh, the first book had sort of brought the story forward to the enactment of the Brown decision in 1954. And he, in progressive updates in, uh, in 1957 and 1966, and then finally 1974, he, he sort of brought the whole story of the battle against segregation up to date. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, it became kind of the, it was, it was wonderful uh, as an assigned text. In, in classrooms because it was, it was very brief but comprehensive and beautifully and engagingly written. That, and, that, was, uh, that was what I was going to say. It, it was beautifully written and compared to a lot of other things that were out in shorter form, that whole debate series that, that we 
used to have in graduate school too. Some of that, oh, wading through that stuff was painful. Not with Woodward's book. No, not at all. And it was brilliant. I mean, his his updates, uh, he, he really, even though he, he ran into all kinds of criticism about his argument about when segregation appeared, you know, his revisions uh, consisted mainly of of updates. And he was, he was, it was just a brilliant, I've never seen its equal and when it comes to just sort of historicizing uh, what's unfolding right before your eyes and, and plugging it into the themes you had developed previously. And uh, so, you know, the book went on to eventually sell uh, a million copies and, uh, you know, first first sale copies, let alone how many it sold in, in used copies. And uh, so it was, a you know, it, it was uh, an enormously uh, influential book and, and widely read even if you viewed it narrowly in terms of the scholarly basis for his, for the argument, then of course it was extremely flawed. But the irony was that that you know he had written between the appearance of uh, of his Tom Watson biography in 1938 and uh, the Strange Career in 1955, he had uh, he'd written four books that essentially just turned the whole narrative of the of Southern history between Reconstruction and World War One upside down. And yet, from that point on, as it would work out, he, he, he never wrote another historical monograph. The way he presented the, the narrative in Strange Career of Jim Crow just pointed to the fact that he was, he was ready to move now into writing for a broader public audience. So he basically now is, you know, within a few years, you're a lot more likely to read C. Van Woodward in in the, the New York Times or the New Republic or Harper's than you were to, to read him in an academic journal. So how then did he become one of the most powerful men in the profession? Because usually that goes to the folks who, you know, the David Donalds of the world who are continually turning out big books. Yeah, well, you know, he had established himself in, a, in such a big way and by the beginning of the 1960s, I mean, David Donald was was really his only serious rival in the field of, of Southern history. But uh, Woodward's continually rising standing as a, as a public intellectual was a, was a huge plus to him career-wise that basically uh, was why he was so attractive to Yale, which lured him away from Johns Hopkins in 1961. And he was one of those rare birds, you know, Schlesinger just was, you know, he knew he wanted to be a public intellectual early on, and he just sort of more or less cut his ties with the academic world, uh, at least as a as an active participant. But in Woodward's case, he's a scholar who, who gained widespread public acceptance and, and, and influence, but maintained his... Uh, his scholarly credibility. So even as he was you know, moved to Yale and was basically now writing for public audiences, he had attracted some graduate students at Hopkins uh, as his fame grew. But uh, you know he became he became like a magnet for you know, some of the brightest people in the country who wanted to to study Southern history and attracted this incredible array of, of graduate students who are some of the most accomplished figures, names uh, out there today in the field of Southern history. And Pulitzer Prize winners. And he was a terrible teacher in, the, in a regular classroom setting. You know, even, even his fondest uh, devoted uh, students would, would admit that. But he was excellent as a... Uh, as a mentor in in helping his students sort of develop their own talents as individual scholars and also in in terms of shaping their treatment of whatever the topic might be for their for their dissertations into into something that would be a, a publishable book you know he acquitted himself so well in that sense it despite the fact that he really made no bones about uh, not really ha- having any enthusiasm at all for teaching undergraduates particularly. And uh, as soon as he got to Yale, he, he took steps to assure that, would, that he wouldn't be doing much of that. And so his, his teaching was, was mostly at the graduate level for, for most of his career at Yale. All right. You mentioned Pulitzer. That's a, uh, nice, that's a nice segue to 
the book that he won a Pulitzer for. It became controversial from the very time uh, he won that award, and even more so since then. The chapter of your book that you discuss that, the masterpiece that became a hoax, parentheses, and won a Pulitzer, close parentheses, rewriting Mary Chestnut's diary. Yeah, that's quite a story. It's an important part of Woodward's life narrative as well. James Merriweather had contacted him in like 1974 about the possibility of doing a re-edited version of, of Mary Chestnut's diary. And when Woodward retired in 1976, he had you know, got Yale involved in this unfortunate episode that led to an investigation by the Organization of American Historians and the American Historical Association over his uh, determination to keep the Marxist scholar Herbert Aptheker from teaching a just a one-semester, single-shot undergraduate seminar on W.E.B. Du Bois. He was still you know, quite the esteemed figure on campus, but, but he lost a lot of support and admiration from from some of his colleagues. And by 1976-77, when he retired, the graduate students were starting to gravitate more toward David Brian Davis and not so much toward Woodward. So he was was a little bit at at loose ends and kind of down. And so he threw himself into editing the the Chestnut Diaries and... uh, he was so very fortunate that the, the South Carolina connection with James Merriweather and his graduate student, Elizabeth Mullenfell, gave him the kind of kickstart. Woodward came down to Columbia and spent several months there on a, on a kind of a fellowship that allowed him to get started, start plowing into the, all the materials. And it had uh, what most people didn't know. I mean, uh, practically uh, what practically everybody didn't know at that time was that the, what had been published thus far, uh, there were two published versions of the diaries, and uh, neither one of them uh, represented a, a, a true sample or, or a, a true representation of, of the, the actual diary that she had written in the Civil War. But in fact, she'd written that diary and rewritten it many times to, and, and produced literally thousands of pages of drafts and redrafts of it that altered a lot of the things and certainly altered the stance and the the way she projected herself in the diary. Most of this was done in the 1880s. And so the question was then, okay, so what do we do here? Do we piece back together as much as we can of the original diaries from from the Civil War, or do we go with, with some kind of hybrid mix of, uh, of what was in the original and the later versions. Both uh, uh, Merriweather and Mullenfield said, at the minimum, you've got to include in whatever you do the original diary. So if you want to talk about or in- incorporate things that she added or took away, the, you know, the reader will have some context. And, but Woodward didn't want to do that. He, he decided he was going to sort of synthesize the versions of the diary written in the 1880s and he, so he said he was going to plug in at appropriate points excerpts from the original diary from, from the war years. And Mullenfell and, and Merriweather were stoutly against this. And, but as it turned out, he did not include a lot of critical material from the original diary. And uh, a lot of what he excluded or some of what he decided to use instead from the 1880s diaries seemed calculated to make Miss Chestnut appear to be a, a, a much more attractive uh, figure as far as, as her ideas and values. And, uh, and, and so Woodward betrays her as a, you know, an emerging feminist uh, because she was known in her diaries to have criticized slavery on several occasions. He, he even made her into a budding abolitionist. And in point of fact, there was a plenty in her papers to show that she was neither. I mean, she was, uh, in fact, she was a much more pro-establishment figure than his presentation of her uh, would lead anyone to believe. I mean, she, she basically supported the, the patriarchy. She did privately criticize slavery, but she never did it publicly. Uh, I mean, maybe except in a very 
tiny circle of her friends. And, uh, you know, I mean, she basically loved the good life that, that slavery afforded her and other members of their aristocratic planter class. So, you know, the diary became very controversial. Uh, uh, Kenneth Lynn reviewed it in the New York Times and called it a, you know, a hoax that what people had actually read was not the full diary included stuff that she had written in the 1880s. And Jim, that diary, Mary Chestnut Civil War, which is what Woodward called this, was a huge, when I say a huge book, it was a huge book physically. Oh, absolutely. And he had had enormous help and hard work out of the people at, at South Carolina just to get him started. And then he managed to get a, a grant and then a, a large uh, support fund at Yale that allowed him to hire graduate students. Uh, and some of the very best graduate students Yale produced at that time, Sean Wilentz, Stephen Hahn, Michael McGare, to work on it. And and they did all of the all of the legwork and annotating the references in the text to individuals or events. And, and McGurr did the 50-page index that was just remarkably comprehensive. So, so Woodward sort of teased the, the things he wanted out of the, out of the various diary versions. But you know, he really didn't do much of the, the scut work that usually goes with, with a project like this at all. He was taken to task by several very prominent historians who said that that he had done a disservice to his fellow historians because, you know, when they picked this book up, they had reason to think they were looking at a primary account as it was first recorded in the 1860s. And, and as it turned out, they couldn't really rely on it. They couldn't really determine exactly uh, when Chestnut's observations that were in the book were, were actually offered, which made it all the more surprising then that uh, he should receive the Pulitzer Prize for what was uh, it was a controversial decision for, for no other reason than he had basically edited somebody else's writing, which was not in the, uh, in the guidelines at all about you know, who was supposed to get a Pulitzer uh, uh, Prize. It was supposed to be a work of original scholarship and, and, and writing. I mean, some people compare this to a lifetime Oscar award. Yeah, well, that's what I think it was. I mean, it was sort of like a, a, a cumulative achievement award, and he had written. I mean, Origins. Uh, it was a. It was. It should have had Pulitzer written all over it. Origins of the New South. At the time, he was going so far against the grain that that was not going to happen in 1955. Yeah, no, that's right. That's exactly right. They could, in fact, have simply given him a sort of certificate of recognition for his career accomplishments as they had done to his colleague, for his colleague, Edmund Morgan. But they, they opted to go ahead and give the, the, the regular prize to him. And one of the members on the, on the panel who, who made the decision was, was his Yale colleague, John Morton Bloom. So there was you know, a lot of talk of inside baseball there. But that really, although that really wasn't that peculiar in the history of the Pulitzer. But, but if you look at what he really contributed to the profession, he was just the most generous and and helpful reader of other people's work. You know, he, he read some of the most important books published in American history in the second half of the 20th century in manuscript and made, you know, suggestions and, and made them better. And uh, and then he, he also publicized them in review essays in the New York Review of Books or the New York Times Book Review and uh, – yeah, in addition to training a truly impressive cadre of graduate students at both uh, Hopkins and Yale, uh, overall, I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think an injustice was done in awarding him a Pulitzer, even though, uh, you know, I'm not sure I would consider personally the book itself Pulitzer worthy. There was controversy over the book, and then there were any number of personal controversies that he got to later in life, which uh, besides the fact that some of his close friends like Robert Penn Warren, uh, another Southerner uh, in exile at Yale, had died. And he got into a real historical tiff, I guess we have to use that term on, on the air, with David Donald over at Harvard saying that Donald was trying to destroy his reputation. 
So his latter few years were not the happiest. Well, he and Donald were at the be- at best what what I think today we might describe as frenemies. Uh, they were always extremely wary of each other. Donald had said that that what what Woodward did in the diary discredited uh, wholly discredited Mary Chestnut, and he really lit into Woodward about Woodward had wrote. Uh, a long essay about W.J. Cash uh, and the mind of the South, where he was uncharacteristically caustic and didn't do himself any favors. So, uh, yeah, he he and Donald were, you know, they were they were superficially cordial to each other, but but uh, it, it wasn't anything more than superficially. But but Woodward had had his life with some of his greatest triumphs were interspersed with severe personal tragedy. He had uh, he became the first person ever in 1969 to serve as president of both the Organization of American Historians and the American Historical Association. But uh, in 1969, he all, also lost uh, his only child, his son, Peter, uh, at age 24 to melanoma. And uh, the, this loss came just a month or two before Woodward had to go pr- Reside at the American Historical Association meeting, where it was a there was a big conflict brewing over uh, uh, attempt by uh, uh, the radical left historians to sort of reorganize uh, and uh, redirect the entire American Historical Association. So he had to go. You know, his son was uh, barely in the grave, and, and he had to go deal with all of that. And then, within the Next four years of, of losing his son Peter, he lost probably his his closest soulmate, David Potter, who had been at Yale, whom Woodward succeeded, but had moved to Stanford. And then he lost Richard Hostetter, who was another very close friend, and then Alexander Bakel, who was a, a close friend from Yale, uh, who was uh, at the, in the Yale Law School. All those uh, people died within three or four years after Peter. And then, as he was receiving the news that he had won the Pulitzer in April of, of 1982, his wife, Woodward's wife, Glenn, was in the last stages of her battle with cancer. And she, she died about, uh, about six weeks after he learned he had won the Pulitzer. So he had a, he had a lot of, of deep personal tragedy that, that really did affect him a lot more than he, he went on. And he, he tried to cover up and cope with it by just working even harder. There he was well into his uh, 70s, and uh, he was working like he was an untenured assistant professor trying to make sure he passed muster, and which made him, of course, continue to be productive. He adapted, but but he was not happy. And that I think that, that figured into some of his angrier responses. He disapproved severely of the move toward uh, a separate black studies program, and then the Black Power movement and multiculturalism, because he he had committed himself basically to assimilation. He championed the cause of racial integration in the civil rights movement, but his overall aim was a society where color would not set set anybody apart, and uh, be, every element would be assimilated into a kind of a common culture. So this led to some very angry statements and essays by Woodward about these various trends. Not that he didn't have some excellent points to make, but it kind of made him seem like the bitter old man shaking his fist at the sky. And and that thought about his, his angry essays or op-eds, what have you, his stature was such, every time he wrote one, it was like a magnet. People responded one way or the other. Oh, absolutely. Yes. If it had existed then, he would have been like a, a setting on your Google search. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what has C. Wan Woodward said recently? Just think about him and uh, Facebook or Twitter. I mean. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, he would have, he would have uh, lit up Twitter or his retweets of what he had said would have, would have uh, certainly done that. Uh, but but he, you know, he, he was very much a distinctive figure in, in, uh, in that respect. And, and he wrote so much stuff. If you classified the, the topics that he wrote about for broader audiences over the second half of his career, it would be like a, 
a master list of the of the crises and the the, the powerful concerns that that uh, arose among Americans during that time. So he commanded a lot of attention. All right, let's let's look at one of those essays. He you mentioned earlier that he really uh, went after W.J. Cash, the mind of the South. Everything was wrong with it, so forth and so on. If we go back and, and actually set the context a little bit, the Mind of the South was published initially in 1941, and it really didn't sell that well or get that much attention. But uh, thanks to the lobbying of Lillian Smith, she tried to get Alfred Knopf to bring it out in paperback. And, and when that happened, and uh, it came out in the in 1960 or 61, it was just, uh, you know, it was a revelation because, you know, you, you were seeing white people behaving extremely badly all over the South. And uh, Cash seemed to have the, you know, the perfect explanation for this kind of the savage ideal, as he called it, the rejection of external ideas, particularly uh, anything emanating out of the North and uh, the violent expression of that rejection. And so the book was still getting quite a bit of attention when Woodward attacked it in 1969. And, you know, and he, he denounced it as, you know, like a hillbilly history of the South. Cash was from North Carolina and used many of Cash's examples were drawn from the upper South or, or, or the upstate of South Carolina. And the, but he, he, Woodward didn't give Cash credit for, for just having this marvelous feel about the mindset of, of white Southerners. Woodward focused on, thought he was far too dismissive of the intellectual life of the South in the antebellum period, and you know, which was, was doubtless true, but the subtext could have well have been, uh, you should be reading me, not him, uh, and others of my ilk, uh, <laughs> and not listening to this guy who's been you know, dead 20 years now. And was a troubled soul uh, uh, when he was writing. But you know, one of the great the great ironies here, Jim, is Lillian Smith championed both of these people. In fact, when the Lillian Smith Prize, which has to deal with race relations in the in the South, Origins of the New South was a prize winner. I did not know that. Uh, well, I mean, and certainly fittingly uh, so. Well. I want to make a comment about the cover of your book simply because it is a sketch that was done of Van Woodward by somebody who is a longtime friend of mine and also of yours, and that is the late Chaz Joyner from Coastal Carolina. I don't know that it was done at a Southern Historical Association meeting or at a seminar, but Woodward went to every Southern Historical Association meeting, and he would sit in the lobby pretty much holding court, and that's what got captured here. You know, this is the grand old man of Southern history. He was sitting there in the lobby, and he was there accepting the homage of the acolytes, graduate students, faculty, coming up to see the great man. And he was always genial, and it seemed like everybody, you know, knew him. You talked about seeing him at a convention where somebody would clap him on the back and say, hello, Van, uh, and he would smile and move on. He, Yeah, he... Uh, he said several times that it was really difficult for him to these people come up to him like that, and he had no idea who they were, and and they would act as though they were his uh, long lost friend. But but I I thought yeah I I considered myself really blessed to be able, and I, I had to have a lot of help from uh, Chaz's family and and uh, others to make that image work. But it just struck me as so perfect, an embodiment of who Woodward became, who he was. All right, Jim, I hate to say this, but Alfred has given me the wind-up sign. So any last words for our listeners before we sign off? Yeah, I'd like to say that the reason for the title, Calling Woodward America's Historian, is that that one of the things I try to do in the book is, is show how he may have started in any particular piece of writing to might have been seemed to be focused on the South, but he wrote so much that that was a commentary on American history writ large. In the irony of Southern history, he writes that it's, it's really not the South's experience that's peculiar. It's peculiar only within the context of the nation. The nation's experience of success and victory and prosperity is peculiar in the global context. 
And so that the South has much more in common with uh, foreign nations, you know, in all parts of the globe, you know, in terms of defeat, occupation, the things that uh, the trials and tribulations and the shifting fortune. And he was trying to say that, that, you know, the United States should take a more realistic view of what the South's history and take a lesson from it about, you know, having grand ambitions and, and trying to force your will on others and, you know, some of the stuff that he saw happening uh, in the 50s with, uh, with our Cold War policies. Well, he, 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 in essence, took exception to the idea of American exceptionalism. He most certainly did, yes. Well ahead of his time. All right. Well, Jim, we are going to have to sign off, and it has been a pleasure to have Jim Cobb, Finnessy Spalding Professor Emeritus at the University of Georgia, one of our country's really great historians on the journal today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Walter. It's always a pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. In many ways, it's frustrating to only be able to have a conversation with Jim Cobb for an hour. Not only is he a longtime friend, but his ability to talk about any topic, whether it's his book or the South in general, it's fun, it's informative. When Alfred gave me the wind-up sign, I really didn't want to quit. The book itself about C. Van Woodward is really a saga of the historical profession in this country, and Jim has captured it beautifully. But history, as Jim Cobb has proven once again, can be not only informative, but a pleasure to read. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.